Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. I want to start today by establishing the main idea if you didn't receive a message card, we are, in fact, out of message cards, but that doesn't mean you can't follow along in the Uversion app on your Bible app. If you click on your smartphone, the Uversion app, click the bottom right, bottom left events, and Dwelling Place Church will show up there. But I want to talk to you about this main idea of how human sexuality is a special creation of God. Among the loftiest of the natural gifts that God has given the human race is sexuality, and as such, God has given it power. Now, it has incredible powers for life, if engaged correctly, and if it's engaged incorrectly, it has incredible powers for destruction. If it's misused or abused, think of it much like a fire. Do you want fire in your house? The question that you should ask me is, depends on where. If you want fire in the fireplace, that's good. You don't want fire in the sofa, all right? That is not good. You want the fire of sexuality and sexual drive in your life, but you don't want it misplaced. You don't want it misused for the very thing that could bring light or heat to a relationship can also burn the house down. It can destroy the house. Think of it much like nuclear power. Human sexuality, if harnessed correctly, has the incredible power for life. If it's misused or abused, it has incredible power for destruction. Human sexuality is so much more than just the propagation of the human species. To use the words of a popular Christian author in America, Human sexuality is truly the mingling of human souls. I was reading this week, one sociologist pointed out that human beings are the only ones that procreate face-to-face. We're the only ones that have sex face-to-face. And the reason being is because we are more than just a biological function. For us, it's something much deeper taking place. For us, something much deeper runs. It's something that runs to the core of the human soul, to the core of the human being. It's very profound, this thing called sex. And when we go back to the very beginning, we're talking about the book of Genesis. Human beings are, we find that God designed human sexuality, and he designed it to teach us about himself. He designed it to teach us what love is really like. See, it's in sex that one person loses themselves in another, and they become one with them. The two become one flesh. The two, though separate and distinct, become mysteriously one, which the Apostle Paul says is like the Trinity. It's different persons, yet one essence. I told the earlier gathering, that's my new pickup line for mayor. Would you like to contemplate the Trinity together tonight, babe? Would you want to... It's not worked yet. I'll keep trying it. I'll keep on using that line, but it's not worked up to this point, right? But, but that's what Paul calls the Trinity. It's this, this mystery. We're going to look at this mystery over the next few weeks, and today we're going to talk about singleness and dating, and we're going to see how Jesus has a very different perspective of singleness than our culture does. He has a very different view of singleness than what the world teaches. Next week, God willing, we're going to look at what God speaks about how to find a spouse. I'm going to the very next week speak about same-sex attraction because I think these things are entirely too silent in our churches today. Is it really wrong to have same-sex attraction? If so, why? Does it really harm anybody, Craig? Does it hurt anybody? Also in that week, I'm going to talk about the subject that most pastors don't want to talk about. It's not easy. It's the subject of divorce. Talk about how devastating divorce is, why it can be so devastating, how to avoid it. And then the part that I think is important is how to deal with it once you've gone through it. 
few weeks ago, I told our class, I said, if love is a dream, then marriage often functions like the alarm clock. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. God can actually bless your life with an incredible marriage. It's God's idea. And finally, we're going to talk about wrapping up that day about something that is a gift that, that our culture, with all its obsession with sex, and has obscured this gift. And that gift is friendship. How marriages really only thrive on friendship. Now, let me tell you why I want to get into this on week one. Many of you, I already received text messages from people streaming live this morning. Many of you, not just here, but streaming live or listen to the podcast. Many of you listen to me each week. You are engaged in sexual sin. And you think it's no big deal. You think, oh, we're adults. We love each other. We're going to get married someday. But, but God says in his word, it is a big deal. God says in Hebrews 13, 4, that marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For he said, if we don't do so, we bring judgment upon ourselves. We bring God's curse on our lives. And so when we say, man, it's not a big deal, it actually is a big deal. For others of us in this room, I know the stats. Pornography is destroying your soul. And I'm not just talking about, I'm not just talking about men. I'm talking about women. This is a major, major issue. And I'm not just talking about young people. I'm talking about people that are older. Did you know that one of the greatest, it's a $12 billion industry, pornography is in our nation, $12 billion. It's more than any other industry combined. And it's amazing really when you look at it, and there's a growing alarming rate of senior citizens that are practicing pornography. It's rampant, rampant. It's not just young people. It's not just middle-aged people. It's rampant in our culture. Stats say that about 50% of men, even in our evangelical churches, are looking at porn within the last two weeks. So if we look at our congregation, I would like to disprove that, but every time I've tried to disprove that, the stats have only proved me wrong. It's a reality dealing with in our culture. It's a reality that men and women deal with. For others, maybe the, your, your craving for sex or romance is so out of balance that you've become obsessed with getting married or getting into a new marriage, and that idolatry is ruining your life. Or maybe you just think if you had a different marital situation, then all things would be well. And so what I'm asking God to do over these next few weeks is to speak life into this area of our lives, to speak healing. There is grace and there is mercy And so I want you to unite with me and our team to pray together over the next few weeks that God would minister to people. And you know what I found so amazing is that when this area of sexuality comes under the lordship of Christ, it becomes a source of blessing to almost every area of your life. Like if you can get the sexuality issue submitted to the lordship of Jesus, you will be amazed at how much blessing that brings to other areas of your life. So let's talk in our outset here about the power of sex. The power of sex. Go with me to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. Now, the power of sex, it's ironic because our culture both undervalues and overvalues sex. We do both, ironically. Let me talk for a moment of how we undervalue sex. As you turn to Proverbs 5, our culture, we tend to want to teach people and to believe that sex is just physical. It's just like food. When you're hungry, eat. Sex is like a sport. You find something you enjoy, you figure out what position you're good at, and then play. It's like tennis. It's like wrestling. It's like tackle football. You tackle each other and you stay on the ground for a while. That's what we teach it like. Like like sex is just physical. And so the important question that the culture tells you to ask is what do you enjoy? What satisfies you in sex for your body? What do you like? Do that. Enjoy that. Engage that. And this idea of strict rules about sex seems, in our culture, terribly draconian 
And because if certain kinds of sex, Craig, are a, are a crime, then they seem like victimless crimes. People aren't getting hurt. But let me ask you a few questions I was asked years ago. And these questions will tell you what we already know. And that is that sex is so much more than just physical. Let me ask you these questions. If sex is just physical, why is rape so much more harmful to a woman than simply just being beat up? If sex is just physical, why do women more readily report physical abuse than rape abuse if it's just physical? Why does it take years to report rape? If sex is just physical, why is it that when a child is sexually abused, when they are an adult and they begin to connect the dots, it's so difficult to shake off the shame if it's just physical? It's not just that an authority figure betrayed them. No, that wound goes so much deeper, so much deeper. If sex is just physical, why is it so devastating, adultery so devastating to a relationship if it's just physical? If sex is just physical, why is it that men with the deepest sexual issues normally, I'm not saying always, but normally had uninvolved or missing fathers? I don't think this brother would care. It was a brother in our, our gathering, last gathering. I asked him if I could share it, an older brother in our congregation, and he came to me with tears at communion. He said, would you take this message and would you share it with everybody? He said, because not because I had dysfunctional relationships all my life because I wanted them, it's because my dad left me and it destroyed everything in my life. And so he, 70-something years old, has dealt with the difficulties and challenges of sexuality. If sex is just physical, why is it that most people's greatest regrets are usually sexual? Can I tell you, 999 out of 1,000 times when someone comes to my office, someone sits down with me in front of a booth and they say, Pastor Craig, I've never told anybody this before, but I felt I need to tell you. The next thing out of their mouth is almost always sexual. The deepest regrets in our life are sexual regrets. In other words, Craig, everything in our experience screams out that sex is more than just physical. There's something so much greater at work. Listen to Solomon talk to his son about sex, Proverbs 5. Listen to Solomon talk to his son. He says in verse 15, drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. A cistern is an image of female sexuality. He's saying drink water from your own wife. Cistern is a flowing well, but you had to go in it. I'm not trying to be graphic here, but you had to go in it to, to receive. He continues and says, verse 16, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Now he switches to a male, male imagery, which is springs. The male image for sexuality is springs. Okay, and Solomon continues, verse 17, he said, let them, that's these treasures, be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Here it is. Be intoxicated, be inebriated with that, that spouse. Be intoxicated always in her love. Be so wrapped up in the wife of your youth that you feel drunk. I think I saw some of you guys for the first time underlining something in your Bible, whatever it takes. <laughs> whatever it takes, brother, whatever it takes. You might not realize how countercultural that statement was. See, a lot of times we read this in Proverbs and we think, well, well Solomon was just talking about something that they already embraced. no. They did not marry in those days for sexual erotic desire to be fulfilled. 
They were actually only two reasons people got married. One was economics. You marry strategically into another family so your family could become wealthier. wealthier. Or number two is fertility. You wanted to have children. But sexual erotic desire was not something you wanted with your spouse. It was something normally you paid for in a prostitute and you, were, you relieved yourself that way. So when Solomon writes this, don't think that he's writing to a culture that's different than ours. He's writing to the same type of culture and saying, listen... Now Solomon is defining sexuality in terms of finding erotic delight in a partner you've given yourself to for life. Say, Craig, how do you know that? Because three chapters early in Proverbs 2, he called your wife the companion of your youth. The word Hebrew companion is haloop. Haloop means soulmate. So he's saying you should get drunk in the chambers with your spouse. You should be inebriated in the love, sexual erotic love between a partner for life. That's far beyond how Solomon's culture saw sex. They saw it as functionally or something that was kind of a satisfaction of an appetite. Let me take you to another passage. Go with me to Proverbs 30. Go 25 chapters ahead. Where Proverbs talks about this again in a much more colorful way. Proverbs chapter 30. Let's read what the scripture says. He says in verse uh, 18 of Proverbs 30. He said, three things are too wonderful for me. Four, I don't understand. This is in Hebrew what we call a three-four poem. Everybody say three-four poem. It was a literary device used to express wonder. It's like three things are awesome, but fourth one, woo! It will blow your mind. And he doesn't just use this in the terms of sex. The whole chapter is a three-four. Go read every every stanza of the of Proverbs thirty is a three-four point. Three things, and 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 what should happen is the reader listens to it. Your wonder should escalate. That's what, he's, that's what he's doing. Your wonder should escalate. The mystery should escalate. In fact, by the way, he says the wonder is this Hebrew word, palau. Palau was the highest Hebrew word. You know what palau was ascribed to? It meant mysterious. It meant wonder. And it was used only to describe for divinity because it's that, that too wonderful to understand. In Isaiah 9, 6, my favorite passage in the Old Testament, the government shall rest upon his shoulders. A son is given, a child is born, and his name shall be called wonderful. You know what the word wonderful is? Palau. And the word to describe Jesus is about to be used to describe sex. The used word to describe our Savior, the mysterious wonder of God, is about to be used in the context of sex. Now here's what he says, verse 19. Here's, it, here's the three. He says, the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas. What's he saying? He's saying the air is mysterious. It's invisible, yet the eagle glides effortlessly through it. He said the snake has no legs, yet it effortlessly, magically goes up the rock face. How does that happen? He says, how does a ship weighing thousands of pounds soar across the open sea? In other words, these things to the creatures of earth seem like magic. There's a special, mysterious design at work. But then he comes to four. Three is awesome, but four... Woo, it's mind-blowing. It's an ultimate mystery. What's number four? The way of a man with a virgin. The way of a man is too lofty to really think about. The way of a man with a virgin is it's mind-boggling. It's mind-blowing. Now, you you got to catch the, tongue, the tongue-in-cheek humor here. You don't want to miss it. Just like the air and the sea and the rock face seem unmanageable to most creatures, so the woman is mysterious and unmanageable to men. All right? You need to understand what Solomon's saying. You can't figure her out. Don't try to, don't try to do it, guys. Don't, just, just accept it as a, rock, a, a snake that goes up a rock face. Okay? We don't understand how it happens. We don't know how the eagle glides on the air, but he does. All right? So our job is not to try to understand, but what is he saying? He said, just as the earth 
and the eagle seems to design to mysteriously work in the air, there's a wonderful mystery taking place between a man and a woman in sexual intercourse. It's a wonderful mystery. Next image, verse 20, is deliberately jarring. Look at this, it's deliberately. He says, but this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. In other words, by contrast, he says, you have a woman for whom sex is like sloppy eating. She said, I had an appetite, I ate. After it, I'm done. I wipe my mouth, I get rid of the traces. That was it, it was just a snack. There's no deep mystery here. And Solomon says, that totally misses the wonder God created for sex. It completely devalues the glory God put in sex. And sex, two become one. Physically, we can imagine that. A woman and a man become one as their bodies interact with one another. And that oneness, Paul would say later in the New Testament, is only to be achieved in a context where everything else has become one. In other words, in marriage, your finances, have become one. In marriage, your lives have become one. In marriage, your families have become one. In marriage, your future has become one. In marriage, your last names have become one. And once everything else is one, then your bodies can become one. But your body's not supposed to become one until everything else has become one. That's why sex outside of marriage separates the physical oneness from the oneness of everything else. And you're saying to the person, I don't really want all of you yet. I don't want to commit all of me to you. I just want, to, I just want a bite of you. That's what he's saying. I, I just want your body. I want a part of you. C.S. Lewis had a great analogy for this. He said, the guy who wants to have sex without, with a girl without marrying her feels, about the, uh, feels the same way a girl uh, who is a bulimic feels about food. He said, the bulimic girl loves the taste of food. She brings her pleasure and comfort. It silences her mind, but she don't want to carry around the empty calories and the fat in her body. So she tastes it, and then she vomits it back out. He said, that's what the guy's doing. He's saying to the girl, I love the taste of you, but I don't want all of you yet. We'll have sex, but I'm not going to give myself to you. I'm not going to commit myself to you. That's what C.S. Lewis says. And some of you say, well, I'm not, I'm not married to my partner, but, but I love them, and I, and I do want all of them. Well, then why aren't you married yet? Well, I really love them, and I plan on being married. Well, why aren't you married yet? And what I'm saying as your pastor is I'm not saying that you don't love them or at some level you're committed to them. But just admit on week one that you haven't given yourself to them yet. And as much as you say you're committed to them, you retain the right at any minute to walk out of their life and leave them right where they're at because you've not married them. Let me be very clear on this in week one since there's a lot of confusion in our culture. I want to say this with authority, but I say this with love, grace. God's acceptance and forgiveness. According to God's word, sex before you've made that lifelong commitment in marriage is sin. However you have the sex, if it's the sex in the dating stage, if it's the sex in the engagement phase, if it's the sex in the hanging out stage, that kind of power that God gave sex is only to be experienced in the indissolvable covenant between a husband and wife for life. Hebrews 13, 4, the marriage should be honored by all, the marriage bed kept pure, for if doing so we will reap judgment. We, we bring a curse. And in whatever sex you want to call it, oral sex, in our culture, I deal with t- teenagers a lot. They, they say it's oral sex is not a sex. You know, it's an, intercourse is the only type of sex. You, 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 you frame it however you want to frame it. The reality is it's sex. Engagement, and it's a sin according to God's word. Someone say, okay, I get it. Sex is better in marriage. But what's the big deal if we have a little fun? 
Woody Allen, I think of his words, he said, sex without love is an empty experience. But as empty experiences go, it's one of the best. I think of Katy Perry. She said, I don't even know your name. It doesn't matter. You're my experimental game. It's just human nature. Some of you are saying, how in the world does he know those lyrics? No questions right now. I'm taking no questions, right? But that's it. Because you're a human and, and you're not an animal. It's more than just nature. It's more than just an experiment. And I've told you before about a book I read years ago called Hooked. It's written by, uh, not a Christian author, it's written by scientists, neurologists. Neurologists of all people. They're not believers. And the book's called Hooked, colon, How Casual Sex is Affecting Our Children. Brilliant book, by the way. It's neurologists, they study of how having sexual partners, multiple sexual partners, what it does to our culture and the fact that it rewires your brain in a way that makes genuine, lasting, selfless relationships very difficult. Here's what they say. It's important enough that I want to put it on the screens for you because it's not my words and it's not a Christian's word. It's a scientist's word. Read with me. The individual who goes from sex partner to sex partner is causing his or her brain to mold in such a way that it eventually accepts that sexual pattern as normal. The pattern of changing sex partners therefore damages their ability to bond in a committed relationship. He says the kind of attachment damage caused by repeated sexual encounters is in many respects more devastating than unwanted pregnancy. It's more devastating than STDs. Repeated sexual encounters hinder our abilities to form lifelong and satisfying relationships. And the author uses the, uh, the example of tape. You've seen it before, duct tape? If you put duct tape around my arm, and you pull the duct tape off, you're going to get hair and uh, skin cells on that duct tape. And you go put that piece of duct tape on another arm, and you wrap it around it, and you rip it off, you're going to get some hair and some, duct, uh, some skin cells. You put it on the third arm, and you wrap it around, you rip it off, you're going to get some hair and less skin cells because it, although it sticks, the power of cohesion is lost. By the time you put that on the 40th person, you have no ability to now stick to the spouse of your lifetime. The powers of cohesion are gone. Your brain has been rewired, and so now... As one great psychologist said, those of us who are addicted, if you're addicted to pornography, he says now you, you, uh, every time you see real naked women, it's just like bad porn because real women don't look like the porn that we've rewired our brains to think for years of our life. It's the same principle, right, as you're connecting. You're, you're engaging. You're connecting one another. Your ability to now cohese, your ability to now connect, your ability to really have the depth of relationship, it's gone. And he says, they conclude, you can no more try out sex than you can try out birth. <laughs> the very act of sex produces a new reality that cannot be undone. So I want to talk today, having established that about the issue of singleness and dating. Singleness and dating. What I want to do for the next few moments is I want to talk to you about some myths that in the church, our society accepts them. We, re- we accept these things as as without qualification, and we even believe and promote them in the church sometime, and they're false, and they cause real damage. Let me hit you the first myth. The first myth of singleness and dating is what I call the marriage equals completion myth. This myth assumes that marriage and a nuclear family is some kind of ultimate state of mankind. If you don't get married or at least find that special someone for your life, then you have missed out on the essential part of a full life. Sadly, as I noted, the church promotes this, sometimes even more than our culture. You can hear it how we try to encourage singles or might I say console singles at weddings. Don't worry, you'll get married someday. Don't worry. Or we tell them, God has just a little bit of work to do on you. He's just doing a little work on you and 
before he brings you that special someone. And you got to become someone special before God can give you someone special. And now we just told the single, you're not special or lovable yet. And we've done a terrible job at this, by the way, in the church. We've done a really bad job. That's not to mention all the psychotic people I see who do get married. And I think if God gave marriage as a reward to those who become special and lovable, God got the wrong address on a lot of marriages I know because they are psychotic. Marriage is not a reward for finding yourself lovable. It's not a reward. A lot of churches treat their single ministries as little more than sanctified substitutes for single bars. I knew a church years ago who literally called their adult adult social group pairs and spares. So like single people are are, are spares. That's a fabulous reality to communicate to people, right? And the assumption in our culture, maybe you grew up in a different tradition, the assumption at least in the church culture I grew up in was that marriage is the ideal state and singleness is an inferior state. Marriage is the ideal state and Singleness is the incomplete state. It's not yet completed. Well, that myth then is closely tied to myth number two. And what is that, Craig? It's what I've heard called the right person myth. That myth is that life's primary quest is for you to find the right person. And when and if you do find them, then all of a sudden everything in your life will be perfect. And until you do, you're not going to be happy. Yes, many of you thought of the heart-touching, nausea-inducing scene in Jerry Maguire where Tom Cruise looks at Renee Zellweger and says, you complete me. The problem is that's unbiblical. I'm incomplete until you love me. Two half people don't make a whole. It's two whole people make a whole. Two 50% people, it's a bad marriage real quickly. Really, really quickly. Thus, in the dating stage, your top priority is just to find the right person. And both of those myths are false, and quite honestly, both lead to confusion and pain. Jesus himself, who was single, I tell people all the time, don't forget that when you pray to Jesus, every time you pray, you pray to a 33-year-old virgin. You pray to a man who's never had sex, and you pray to a man who was never married. Just think about that. Every time you pray, you pray to a person who was a virgin. And Jesus, who was single himself, so strongly he, he communicates this in the Scriptures that sometimes if you didn't know the whole context of Scripture, you would think that Jesus was disinmarriage. You, you really would. Let's look at a couple passages. Mark chapter 3. Look at Mark chapter 3 with me, verse uh, 31. Look what Jesus says. And his mother and brothers came to him, and they were standing outside. They sent to him, and they called him. He was teaching. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother, Jesus, and your brothers are outside. They're seeking you. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my brother and my, and my, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, he is my mother, he is my sister. You said, Craig, what is going on here? Does Jesus not love his mama? Jesus not love his brothers? Of course he did. But he was using this opportunity to teach something very important. Are you ready? Jesus had a greater family than his biological one. The family he was creating in the church would trump even the bonds of biology. I need to give you a radical statement. I know you're going to have a hard time believing it, some of you, but i got to give it to you because it's truth. You ready for it? This is radical for some of us. The nuclear family is not the center of God's kingdom. Husband and wife and kids are not the center of God's kingdom. The biological relationships are not the center of God's kingdom. Jesus just said it. You say, Craig, that's only one instance. No, there's all instances. Luke chapter 11, let's read it. Luke chapter 11, Jesus teaching again, verse 27. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, 
Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Now listen, I'm all into people talking back when I preach. When they say like, preach it, preacher, go on with your bad self, that has to be one of the most awkward things that anybody's ever yelled at the preacher. Imagine, whoo, Pastor Craig, your mama's breasts are blessed. You know what I mean? It's like, whoa, what in the world is that? Like, I appreciate like preacher, preacher would do well here, right? It's something altogether different when you hear something like that. And so Jesus then responds. Now notice this. This is what he responds. He says, rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Listen to me. You focus just a moment. Take a minute to let that sink in. He says, those who obey the word of God and are more blessed and precious to Jesus than his own biological mother. You are more blessed and precious to Jesus than his mama if you obey his word. Somebody ought to shout on that one. That's what Jesus says. Now, how awesome would it be to have Jesus in your ancestry tree? Would you not drop that Jesus bomb all the time? You've been in school, hey, my great, 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 great grandpa is Jesus. You know, it's like, you're talking about name dropping. But Jesus says, hey, being my brother, no big deal. Being my mom, no big deal. Being my sister, no big deal. United to me in my baptism and have my spirit dwelling in you, huge deal. Huge deal. Go back to Mark's gospel with me. Mark chapter 12, Jesus again teaching in the Sadducees. Mark chapter 12, verse 18, the Sadducees. And Sadducees are those who say there is no resurrection. That's why they're Sadducee. Never gets old. Never, ever gets old. There were Sadducees, and, and he says to them, he says, Teacher, Rabbi, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That's a Levitical law, by the way. Brother dies, get his other brother, have procreation with that wife, and bear him some posterity. He says, verse 20, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife. And when he died, he left no offspring. So the second took her and died and left no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. And the guys say, Jesus and the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now this is why we can't stand, why people get so annoyed at seminary students. Because they ask dumb questions like this, all right? You get in seminary long enough and you ask these kind of questions. that make no sense and matter nothing to a hill of beans. And Jesus is not perturbed by their question. He looks at them, and look how he responds. Look, verse 24. This is Jesus, y'all. This is Jesus. This is not Craig. This is not a pastor. He said, you are wrong. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And angels in heaven are never married and will never be married. You know what Jesus' answer is simply? In heaven, marriage and the nuclear family do not exist. I want to say it again. In heaven, marriage and the nuclear family do not exist. I would admit part of that makes me a little sad. In heaven, when I see Meredith, will there be nothing? Like, why at least give her a wink, you know, and a suggestive nod, like meet me over here, you know, in my mansion, you know. Like, And some of you say, well, that makes me sad too. Well, listen to me. Listen to me. This is good gospel preaching right here. There's no sadness here. Because in heaven, you see, there are no joys that are diminished. It's only joys that are heightened. And you know what that means? C.S. Lewis, again, I'm going to Clyde Staples today. He wrote in his book called Miracles. This is his example. He said, imagine, uh, he said, imagine you were trying to explain to your 12-year-old 
um, your adolescent that the greatest bodily pleasure they would ever experience is sex. So my son's eight. Imagine he's 12. And I said, Knox, the greatest bodily pleasure you'll ever experience is sex with your wife. And he says to me, uh, well, the greatest bodily pleasure, Dad, is to eat candy. And I say, no, son, the greatest bodily pleasure is to have sex with your wife. And he says, well, can I eat candy while we do it? And I would have a hard time then explaining to him, son, you will be so wrapped up in that moment. You will, you will, it's a hard to explain to him that sexual pleasure is so much better than eating candy that you won't even think about bubble tape. And Lewis said, we are the kids who have the, the candy called sex and the candy called the nuclear family and the candy called marriage. But when we get to heaven, come on, this is gospel preaching right here. We're going to get something that's so much better than sex, get something that's so much better than a nuclear family, get something that's so much better than just being parent of kids. And when we get to heaven, we're going to be able to put that away and realize that whatever God has for us there will be better than what we have on earth. That means whatever it's like up there, I'll be closer to Meredith and I'll be closer to Knox, Marley, and Harper there than I am here. It's just that they won't be my kids. They'll be my brothers and sisters in Jesus. Wow. That's a reality to ponder. So you say, Craig, why is the title of the message preparing for the ultimate marriage? Because the ultimate marriage is more important than the temporary marriage. Preparing for the ultimate marriage. The bigger point for me to get you to see today is that marriage is not eternal. Eternal. And marriage is not ultimate because we don't take it with us in the resurrection. The relationships, mothers, brothers, fathers, wife, they're only temporary, church. They're only temporary. Jesus, in one statement, is calling a new family. We're the single people in Christ. You're single here today. You've not grown up in a traditional family. You listen to me. You are a full-fledged family member on par with everybody else in this community. You're bearing fruit for God. You're becoming mothers and fathers of the eternal kind. Marriage is temporary, and one day it will give way to the relationship that marriage was pointing to all along. That was Christ and his church. And just like when you see your spouse, the, the way of a picture is no longer needed. You won't need a spouse when you meet your real spouse the husband of the church, Jesus Christ. So it's the ultimate marriage. Paul goes on, who's a later single man, he also goes on, 1 Corinthians 7, look what he says. He says, the appointed time of Christ's return has grown very short. He says, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. <laughs> what in the world, Paul? What did you just say? That seems like the mantra of going to Vegas. If you're married, just pretend like what's in Vegas stays in Vegas. Don't, don't act like you're married if you're married anymore. What is Paul saying? This is a weird text. Let those who are married live as though they had no wives. Is that crazy? Does this mean live crazy? No, that would be inconsistent with Scripture. Verse 30. Why for the present form of this world is passing away? So Paul is saying the world is passing away, marriage is passing away, biological families are passing away, the time of Jesus' turn is short, so for a married man to live as though he had no wife doesn't mean he lives crazy with other women. It means that he lives every day reflecting on the fact that his marriage is not ultimate and his marriage is not permanent. And as you single people in the room, he's saying you should reflect on the fact that your situation is not permanent either. Your situation is not eternal either. Both situations, church, both marriage and singleness are light and momentary, and soon they will give way to what is permanent and ultimate, which is Christ and the church. What are you saying, Craig? I'm saying that married and singleness, both are temporary gifts that God gives different individuals for the fulfillment of his purposes on the earth. 
I want to say it again. Both marriage and singleness are both gifts, but they're both temporary gifts that God gives to different individuals for the fulfillment of his purposes on the earth. Go back to 1 Corinthians 7, 7. Look what Paul said. He said, I wish that all people were as I myself am. What was Paul? Single. Paul said, I wish everybody was single. I wish everybody was single. But each one has his own gift. Everybody say gift. That word gift is charismata. It's a spiritual empowerment. Each one has his own spiritual empowerment. One of what? One kind and one of the other. What's he saying? Both marriage and singleness are gifts. They're both charismata. They're both spiritual empowerments. Let's stop looking at singleness like it's an incomplete state. It is a charismata. It is a spiritual empowerment that God gives some people temporary and some people for a long term that they might fulfill his purposes in the earth. Both singleness and marriage are charismata. They're spiritual empowerments. Why? You need both to do whatever God's called you to do well. You say, well, Craig, I get how marriage can be a gift. In marriage, you get a companion. You get to have sex every day. A girl seems to sometimes get a provider, protector, someone to dote on her, take her on dates. The guy gets someone to tell him he should never wear black socks with tennis shoes and shorts or change his sheets more than one time per six months or brush his teeth two times a day. We get that in marriage, but how can singleness be a gift, Craig? Well, Paul explains how singleness is a gift. He says in verse 33, this is what he said. This is how singleness is a gift. He says the married man is anxious about worldly things. The married man, verse 33, is anxious about worldly things. And the Bible says how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. Now you hear me. I'm saying this with the utmost respect, so don't take the wrong tenor here. My wife is a wonderful gift to me. She is the number one gift of God to me outside of salvation. Hands down. She's a wonderful gift to me, but when I got married, my interests got divided. I had to start spending a lot of my money on pleasing my wife. I had to start spending a lot of my money on pleasing my children, raising my children, having giving to my children. Before I got married to move, if I wanted to move, it took me one buddy, a Ford Mustang, a few bungee cords, and 15 minutes. Now, in order to move, we have to have one U-Haul just for the pillows on top of our couch. I'm not talking about the couch. I'm talking about the pillows on top of our couch and the pillows on our bed. Just one entire U-Haul now that I'm married. Like, when I was, when I was a single in bathroom, I had one bar of soap, Greg. I washed my hair. I washed my face, my whole body, the side of the walls, the bottom, the drain, everything with one bar of soap. Now I got rock-looking thingies in the bottom. I got 14,000 different bottles, you know, from the left to the right, and, and I don't know what in the world is happening, right? My marriage calls my interest to be what? Divided. Very much divided. Not in a bad way, but they are Divided. The marriage causes the situations to be divided. On a more serious note, my schedule is different. Even for ministry, I'm not able to go on all the mission trips I want to go on. I can't work until 8 o'clock p.m. every night and go home and watch a movie to unwind and golf every Saturday. I can't do that. i got to be home at 5 to eat dinner, to give baths, and to read Berenstain Bears. And when I'm on my way home, I drink a spark because my real work is about to start. My real work ain't ministry. My real work is about my kids and my love of my wife. If I have ever energy, whatever you takes, guys. Uh, a, a man told me after the first gathering, he said, I'm empty at the end of the day. I said, I want to encourage all men to be empty. Every one of us men should go to bed empty every night. Fully, beautifully exhausted on behalf of the culture around us and the 
work that we do and the wives that surround us and the children. We should go to bed empty. I'm encouraging you to go to bed empty. It's not easy. Never meant to be easy. Singleness, he said, can be a gift that allows you to be more devoted to God's kingdom. And maybe it's a, God, a gift that God gives you temporarily, like Sarah Goff in our community. If she was married, she couldn't go to Mongolia for nine months. So God gave her a charisma a spiritual gift to be single so she can go to Mongolia and the gospel would spread among Mongolians. That's a spiritual charisma That's not to be looked down upon. That's to be celebrated in Jesus' name. So let's make sure we understand what God has called us specifically to. And singleness, by the way, can be a temporary gift or a permanent gift. You understand this, right? You can be a eunuch that God calls you for the rest of your life, or it may be temporary so you can fulfill your education. Maybe so you can fulfill a ministry assignment. But you say, Craig, I don't want to be alone. Well, you're not meant to be alone. It's just not that marriage, it's just that marriage is not the only way to not be alone. Listen, a lot of times I hear people say, well, all you need is God. I woke up this morning, turned on Facebook, and a past friend had a meme that said, all you need is God. Well, that sounds really spiritual, but the problem is God never says that. He never says, all you need is me. He's actually the one that said, it's not good that man should be alone. It sounds good, but it's not God. You say, Craig, how do you know? Marriage is not the only way that God takes care of our loneliness. You say, Craig, how do you know that? Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Jesus said, truly I say to you, if you give up house and home, you give up brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time? He didn't say God would only bless you in the kingdom. He said, if you give up all of those things of family, God will bless you now. What are you saying, Craig? Because the ultimate community in God's kingdom is the C-H-U-R-C-H. The ultimate community in God's kingdom is not your nuclear family. God can take care of the loneliness of your soul through the church. God can take care of the desire for companionship through the church. Why? That's what Jesus said. That's why he created the church. You say, I really want to have kids. Awesome. Jesus said spiritual offspring are more important than even biological offspring. You say, Craig, I don't believe it. Well, if you're single, you need to get involved in the discipleship ministries of the church. There's single people in our church right now that are surrogate big brothers to kids in our church. What about kids in the future that come into this church who have been deprived of fatherhood? Can a 24-year-old single brother become a father figure and become a surrogate dad in that young man's life? I hope he does. That's what the church is for. That's the desire of God. The only part of your life that's unfulfilled if you're single is sexual. And God says he will give you a special charisma, a special spiritual empowerment for that. And let me tell you, in eternity, he's going to give you something that makes sexual pleasure seem so insignificant. But other things we feel like we need marriage for, companionship, offspring, God gives you now in the ultimate form in the church. So singleness, listen, is a gift that God gives some to his purposes. And it comes with divine enablement. And you need it to deal with the struggles of being single. But by the way, marriage is also a gift that you need divine enablement, don't you? For what it's worth, I mean, I kind of throw it out there. I know a lot more unhappy married people than unhappy single people. And I'll just throw that out there. You take it for what it's worth. Because both require spiritual empowerment. So whatever stage God has you in, come on, Casey. You can be happy and fulfilled because happiness and fulfillment do not come from your marital status. They come from the God who gifts and empowers you and walks with you every step of the way. For many of you, this seems crazy. You say happy without marriage? I know that sounds crazy to you, but what I'm talking about today is a level of commitment that you've not yet got to. Christianity does not work for the half committed. Can I, can I say that again? Please, hear me. It does not work for people who use spiritual life as a garnish to your life. Christianity only works for people who have fully abandoned. And people say, well, it's not working for me. It's not working for you because you won't do it the way God says to do it. 
well, how can I be happy and single? You can be happy and single if you'll really do what God tells you to do. And that's being totally abandoned to the, the king's calls. And if you're unhappy and you're singleness, here's what I pray. I pray your unhappiness is, is used like pain and tragedy. You know how pain and tragedy work? They're catalysts to go beyond our shallow religious and religiosity to a deeper relationship with God. We need to get rid of the myth that life and real life is only found in a spouse. No, no, no. I had a friend at our last church. He was single until he was a little older. He's now married, but he said he got so sick of the sweet little ladies at the church. Every wedding he'd go to, they'd come up to him and say, don't worry. Don't worry, you're next. He said, finally, I got him to shut up. I'd go to the funerals and I'd look at him and say, don't worry, you're next. You're next. You're next. Your time's coming. Here's myth number two. The right person myth. This one's shorter, but there's two parts to this myth. It's There's a right person for you, and a good marriage is determined only by finding that person. If you don't find that person, you're never going to be happy. And if you're unhappy, it's because you hadn't found that special someone. It's one of the most widespread destructive myths in our culture. Let me paint a picture for you. Here's how this myth destroys marriages. You ready? In the dating stage, you're on the hunt. You're going after Mr. Right, Mrs. White. You've got to find that right person. You're always worried about it. You think about it every night when you lay in your bed. You're always worried about it. You wonder, what if I don't find them? Am I too picky? What if they don't like me? Do they like me? Do they not like me? Oh, if I don't get this right, I'm going to be unhappy married or even worse, I'm going to be single all my life. And it consumes your thought. Finally, you find someone who sweeps you off your feet. Woo! They are it. You fall in love. You think he's it, she's it. She's it in a bag of potato shit. Potato chip. Our, our relationship is perfect, and and we're going to be together, and, and we never fight. I, I was talking to a married couple in our church this last week, and they said we never fight, and I laughed. And I always get amused when people say you never fight. I'm like, just wait, just wait. We never fight. I'm like, oh, that's cute, that's cute. Keep following Jesus. But then you get married, and and you figure out they're not as special as you thought. Guy smells bad all the time. He seems totally oblivious to your needs. He spends more time on his phone than you. You figure out she's selfish, seems to act crazy sometimes. She thinks that you're telepathic and know how to meet all of her needs by getting brainwaves across the room. And then those little habits that they have start to drive you crazy. In the dating stage, you thought they were quirky, almost entertaining. Now you think they need to go see a psychologist because something's wrong in their brain. Something's wrong with that person. And then their selfishness kicks in or their bad temper kicks in and their thoughtlessness really starts to hurt you. Your sexual desires are out of sync. She wants to have sex at 12 in the noonday with a high sun. You want to have sex at 10 o'clock at p.m. because that's what they do in the movies. All your things are out of sync. Looking at them doesn't intoxicate you anymore. By the way, Paul's time out. Psychologists say the intoxication phase can't last more than 18 months. It's, it's, it's You're physiologically wired to not be intoxicated past 18 months. Now you used to be intoxicated. Now you can't stand to look at each other in the face. That's why marriage can't be built on intoxication or emotion or feeling or just attraction. It's got to be a commitment that's so much deeper, so much deeper. Now you're no longer intoxicated, so you come to a crisis point in your marriage, and you think, I know how to fix this. I got it. Let's have a baby. Well, that's brilliant. Let's bring a baby into this dysfunctional relationship, right? That's, that's a great idea. Did you know one of the top three times a man has an affair on his wife? Did you know this? This is stats. The top three times, one of the top two is when his wife is pregnant with their first child. You know why? Because babies don't fix anything. Children do not fix anything in marriages. They only further perpetuate the issues that are already present. Well, after having the baby, you're tired, you're losing sleep like the couple I met in Bistro C in Kent yesterday. And 
she was so tired and worn out with her first child, she's asking questions about breastfeeding. And I'm like, I'm a man, you realize this? And, and nursing, and I'm trying to tell her how my wife and I got through our first child. And she's just like, oh, that sounds like an awesome thing. <laughs> you know, and, and parents are just shell-shocked. Shell-shocked. Like, wait till you have three. <laughs> you know, they're just shell-shocked. And then all of a sudden you're at work and there you see her. <gasps> she's the right person. Oh, that's it. I married the wrong person. Oh, that's it. I married the wrong person. I waited. I went too early. So that's the right person. So I need to divorce the wrong person so that I can get married to the right person because two wrongs don't make a right. Why write insult to injury? And so and so you divorce the first person to try to get married to the right person. And yet it doesn't work either. Can I tell you why it doesn't work? Because you always marry the wrong person. Why? Because they're a sinner and you're a sinner too. You never. You never marry the right person. You marry the wrong person. I marry the wrong person. And yet I make a commitment to say I'm going to love that person. And if you try to connect the, uh, correct the problem in your marriage by changing partners, guess what? You're correcting the wrong problem. You're correcting the wrong problem. Lonely, insecure dating people become lonely, insecure married people. Did you know lonely, insecure dating people are not corrected in their issues by a spouse? I love how Gary... Gary Thomas said, he said, marriage doesn't solve emptiness, it exposes it. If someone can't live without you, he or she will never be happy living with you. I know that totally deflates your romantic line. I can't live without you. If somebody says, I can't live without you, you better run, baby, run, because they can't live with you either. And a marriage to a new person won't fix the problem. A lot of people blame marriage on their personal issues. Well, that person makes me like, well, that person makes me, well, that person does it. Marriage doesn't create problems. Marriage reveals problems. There's no such thing as married people problems. There's individual problems that are revealed in marriage. Individual issues that get revealed in the marriage relationship. One great author, he said, the best you can hope for in marriage is less of a bad match for you. Because everybody ends up being a bad match. This is sadistic. No, this is just gospel. This is just covenant commitment. This is just love. So what if you gave up the idea that there's a perfect person and understood that that wasn't what marriage was about anyway? What if you saw that God's main purpose in life was not preparing you for a spouse, but preparing you for himself and his kingdom? And that marriage is one way he can do that and one way he can supply your needs, but it's not the only way he can prepare you and it's not the only way he can supply your needs. Would that not change the way? Wouldn't that be radical if our church had single people who approach singleness that way? Rather than being on this rabid, obsessive search for the right person who is the key to a happy life, we put our eyes on God and not a spouse. We put our eyes on the King of Kings and focus on becoming what God wants us to be for Him, not for another person. Focus on what God wants us to become for His kingdom and let Him choose whatever way He wants to supply our sexual desire. Let God choose whatever way He wants to supply the the passion we have for another spouse. Listen to this. After talking to all the needs, God talks, Jesus talks about singleness or, or, or companionship. He talks about friendship. He talks about eating. He talks about food. He talks about clothing. And He gets to the end of all that and Jesus says this, 
my life verse, Matthew 6, 33. He says, I know all that, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. In other words, stop preparing yourself just for a spouse. Start preparing yourself and focusing yourself on the kingdom of God and what he wants, and trust God to give you a spouse. Trust God to give you the fulfillment of your sexual desires. You say, Craig, well, Jesus is disconnected. He don't know my desires. Yes, he does. He knows how much sexual desire you have. He knows if he's put a fire in your bosom or not. He knows if you are lit or not. He knows whether or not you want a companion or not. He knows if you need food or not. He knows it all. It's just that his kingdom doesn't allow you to focus on it and put him on the back burner. The way of his kingdom is to say, God, I focus on becoming who you want me to be for your kingdom and for the ultimate marriage. And then God says, now that your priorities are aligned, I will trust, you can trust me to supply whatever you need. Whatever you need, young person, I'll supply. That means when I'm single, my focus has to become on becoming the right person, not finding the right person. And our preparation in life is mainly for our ultimate marriage to him, not our temporary marriage to Meredith. My most important identity is not husband of Meredith Mosgrove. It's the son of the living God. It's the bride of Christ. Think of it this way. We're all preparing for marriage. Just some of us won't be on this earth. You get to skip the JV version and go straight to the varsity version. You get to go play varsity when you're married to the husband of the church, our King Jesus. Let me tell you this. The ironic benefit for you that if you're single is if you'll begin to think this way, when and if God brings this person to you, ironically, you'll be ready for them. Married folk, let me see all your hand in the room. I want you to give me a good amen and hearty amen when I, when I get this last point right here. I need a good hearty amen. We think that when we're married, we think that just we're just going to be able to stand at an altar and promise to be an awesome spouse. And because we make a promise, then that's going to give me the ability to do it. Does that work in any other area of your life? Does, do you succeed at anything based on the strength of your promise? No. Marathon runners, if you've not trained for a marathon and prepared and you say, I promise to run 26.2 miles today, you will run 1.6 miles and you'll have on your mind Krispy Kreme donuts and you would be ready to die. Because preparation is more important than what? Promise. Promise means nothing in marriage if you're not prepared for that promise. Promise means nothing if you're not prepared. People say, well, I'm going to rise to the occasion. <clears throat> Rising to the occasion is a myth. You perform at the level of your preparation. People say, well, they didn't rise to their potential. I'm like, you're better off just falling to the level of your preparation because that's where you'll find yourself and you'll realize, realize that I need God's grace. So let's don't, let's don't rise to the occasion. Let's fall to the level of our preparation. Hit it smack in the face and realize I need to prepare. Someone said, hey, preach, preach in Spanish next Sunday. I promise I'll preach in Sunday, next Sunday in Spanish. See, see. <laughs> it's going to be disastrous next Sunday because my promise means nothing if I don't prepare. Promises are no substitute for preparation. So look at me, single people. Now's the time to prepare. Not for marriage, but for the kingdom of God. I tricked you, didn't I? Prepare. What do you mean, Craig? See, when you open the scriptures and you say, how do I find the person I'm looking for? you will find very little help. It'll say, trust God, trust God, trust God. But you open up the scriptures and say, how do I become the right person? And scriptures will go, boom, 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 boom. Because happiness is not finding the right person, it's becoming the right person. 
I've heard it asked this way. Are you the person that the person you're looking for is looking for? Because be honest with me, singles, if you met the person you're looking for after church, some of you would not be ready for the person you're looking for because you're not the person that the person you're looking for is looking for. You wouldn't be ready anyways. So Craig, how do we do this? I'm gonna give you five concrete things. This is this is very concrete action. You ready, singles? How do you prepare now? Break bad habits and start good ones. If you're in debt, please do whatever you can to try to get out of debt so you have a foundation that's stable in marriage. Try to get out of debt. If you're still looking at porn, you've got to get the porn stuff behind you. Young man, young woman, you've got to get this porn stuff behind you. Craig, y'all beat us up here? No, man, there's transformation. There's people want to hold you accountable. You got to get the porn stuff behind you. You got to break break the bad habits and start good ones. Here's the second one. Get into real community. Everybody say real community. You know what that means? Pastor Chad, I don't know if it's true for you. Out of all the couples that come in my office, I guarantee you there are more marriages that can be saved through couples being in good connect groups than I can ever do through counseling. You need real community. You want your marriage to thrive? Get around some other couples who are trying to thrive. It will change your marriage. Real community. Real community. There is nothing like being involved in a healthy church. I sat there with tears in my eyes and begged to high school parents. I've done it for years of my life. Your kid will be different when they graduate. If they're freshmen, if they will just stay committed to this student ministry in the church, they will graduate as seniors and look totally different from their peers. Trust me, please believe me, please believe me, please believe me, please believe me. There is nothing that can substitute the power of a healthy church. There is nothing on the planet that can substitute the power of a healthy church, healthy community, being involved, being engaged, finding connect group, finding people that you can journey with. Here's the number third thing. Establish your career in ministry. I was, a, I was a teenager and I read the scripture, Proverbs 24, 27. Look at the scripture says, Proverbs chapter 24, 27. He said, put your work outside, outside work first. Get everything ready for yourself in the field. Then after that, build your house. What's he saying? He's saying that go find out what God's called you to do and your career in ministry, then worry about coming and finding a spouse. Because if you don't know what God's called you to do before you find a spouse, then you'll surrender your personal calling that God has for you on the altar of your marriage. And then you'll never be who God's called you to be. So he said, get your outdoor work ready first. Get your career and your ministry and what God's called you to do first. Then go worry about your house. Or else you won't know what God's called you to do. You'll just succumb to whatever your spouse is called to do. You just surrender your uniqueness. What that means for you single guys, get a job. I promise you, you'll be more attractive if you get a job. Oh my goodness, work what you got. Come on, look at a single guy in the room and say, work what you got, brother. Work what you got. If you, if I get one more young male, right, coming to me and saying, there's just no women. I'm like, our church is full of single women. It's like, brush your teeth. Fix your hair. Join the welcome team. Welcome to Dwelling Place, honey. How are you today? You a first-time guest? You know, like, like, do whatever you got to do, do something. Here's the fourth thing. Decide the kind of person you're going to date. Listen to me. Listen, ladies. You say, I'm ready to date, but you can't tell me right now the caricature of the person you want to date. I'll tell you you're not ready to date. Until you can define who it is you want to date, you're not ready to date. Decide the kind of person you're going to date. If marriage is a gift, don't you think it's good enough for us in advance to figure out what that gift needs to look like? I don't know. Christians dated, don't date a non-Christian. You've heard it said that we're yoked with a believer. That means if you're single, start running as fast as you can. Woo! 
fast as you can. Get faster and faster. And then look over to your right and see that chick and be like, whoa, I like your stride, girl. You're looking good today. And then become her spouse. Don't do that at the gym, by the way. That would be freaky really quickly, all right? Run as fast as you can after Jesus and see who's next to you and say, I like your stride, baby. You want to run together? Because you're going to the same destination. You want to run? Let's run together. Non-Christians, listen to me. I'm not trying to be mean. Don't date a Christian unless you plan to become one. If you're a non-Christian here, do not date a Christian unless you plan to become one. When you think about it, if you're not a Christian and you're in this room and you're dating someone who's a Christian, understand that their hope for you is to become a Christian. You want me to prove it to you? You're here. And I want to tell you, I'm not trying to beat you up, but I want you to listen to me. You listen to me. They do not accept you for who you are. They want you to change and they want you to be a believer. And their mom and dad don't like you. And they're always going to talk about you and talk about you becoming a believer and praying for you. I've been down this road too many times, folks. I'm just telling you. If you're a non-Christian, you're dating a Christian, they will not accept you for who you are until you meet Jesus. They won't. They're going to pray about you. They're going to have fasting times about you. They're going to text each other about you. They're going to try to do Why? I'm just being honest with you because I love you. So if you're a non-Christian, you better become a Christian or don't date a Christian. It just doesn't end well. And then fifthly and finally, you cultivate Christ-like character. What do you mean, Craig? 1 Corinthians 13, I end with this. Come on, team. Traditionally, this is the passage read at marriages, but it's not about marriage. It's sandwiched between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. It's not about marriage. He says, the love chapter, these are virtues to be lived out in the church. Everybody say church. He says, love is patient. Patient means you're okay with other people not being okay. And when you learn that in the church, guess what that makes you? A good what? Spouse. Love is kind. You know what that means? It's considerate. It thinks of other people's needs instinctively. Guess what that makes? A great spouse. But that wasn't written for spouses. That was meant for the church. Guess what? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Think of the kind of person that forgives others when they hurt you. Guess what kind of spouse that makes you? A good one. Love does not envy. I can be happy that you feel good even though I don't feel good. That's so crucial in marriage. I meet married couples. Bad marriages I've seen. You know what they believe? They believe since you don't feel good, I'm not going to let, I'm not, since I don't feel good, I'm not going to let you feel good. I'm going to make it miserable for you. Love does not boast. It's not proud. You know what that means? Love doesn't think life is all about them and they deserve everything and every gift should come in their lap. Love does not dishonor. That means love never uses people as a sexual commodity. It doesn't dishonor people. doesn't use you to, some people get, some people don't love love. Some people don't love the person. They love love. They love the idea of love, so they get in a relationship with somebody, so it props them up emotionally, not because they love the other person. They're unable to love the other person because they don't love themselves. Love doesn't do that. Love never gives up. Never gives up on people. And the irony is that all those things are needed in marriage, but where are they built? In the church. Because the church is the laboratory for where good spouses are made. And if you read 1 Corinthians 13, go home today and mark out love and put Jesus. He's the embodiment of every one of them. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus said, I'll cast yourself from sin as far as the east is from the west. That's Jesus, isn't it? Love's considerate. Love is kind. Jesus is kind. He doesn't count our sins against us. He's kind. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Love is compassionate. Just take 1 Corinthians 13, mark out love and put Jesus. He's the embodiment of love. The reality is, is when you love him and your vertical relationship gets right, your horizontal relationships will work. The value and the healthiness of your horizontal relationships is directly dependent on 
the healthiness of your vertical relationship. And there's only grace and forgiveness and mercy through Jesus. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.